You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good morning. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Strategy at Friends of Europe and I'm your moderator for this event um, on the World Energy Outlook, Europe in the global energy scene. Uh, quite a fitting timing, actually, for this conversation, given the conversations that have just concluded around COP23. Uh, and we have a panel and a set of speakers that really are influential, key, and have been key to the discussions around the Paris Agreement and beyond, and as we move forward. So it should make for a very interesting and lively conversation, I hope. Um, it's evident, I mean, that the timing of the conversation is clearly important, but as we, those of you who were here last year will know that... The forces of market and supply in energy are the key determinants for some of this conversation. But they are kind of almost put in parenthesis around politics and money. And those are the things that actually contour this conversation into the future. It is absolutely clear that um, we, whilst we try and stabilize our approach... Um, to uh, climate, you know, cli the impact of climate, uh, climate change and reduce um, CO2, we know that we're not very good at being able to predict it effectively in terms of behavior, predict it in terms of investment, and predict it in terms of how the economy is actually working in politics. The departure of America from these conversations is obviously having an impact. Uh, we know that the recent increase, we saw the report that came out a couple of weeks ago that CO2 emissions have gone up after a period of stability. Therefore, our ability to forecast the future isn't as great as we thought. And what does that do about the fact that actually all our implications, our assessments for the future are that we need to peak by 2020 then actually go down. And we know actually currently, currently, we don't have enough money that's required to invest in the type of approach that we need if we're going to get to our, achieve our targets. So that makes for a really heady mix of, of a situation that we need to kind of come to terms with. What we do know is temperature is on the rise. We've had probably the hottest year on, on, on record. And we know that behavior in some respects isn't changing dramatically. And one of the things that we might want to think about is, you know, the relationship between economic growth and climate change. We thought we had that sorted in Europe, but have we? So on that note, it gives me great pleasure to invite Fatih Birol, who is a well-known personality to all of you and a good friend of the House, Friends of, friends of Europe, uh, and to, uh, to present his usual report on the World Energy Outlook. I invite you to the stage, Fessy. Uh, Mr. Vice President, Excellencies, uh, dear colleagues, uh, a very good morning to all of you. It is, again, a great pleasure to come to uh, Brussels to this, uh, I think, almost traditional event of the World Energy Outlook organized by uh, Friends of uh, Europe, uh, much appreciated to see also uh, many of you uh, here. This is the, uh, we publish the World Energy Outlook every year. This is the 14th edition, so since 1977. And what we try to do in this report is to try to put some uh, future expectations in order policymakers to have an idea where do we go 
with the current policies, if it is the right way or wrong way, is it the way that we like it or not, so that they change their position or they don't. So it is just to provide a framework for the policymakers. And uh, I was uh, carrying out this work since several years, but I left uh, two years ago for a uh, good reason. And uh, I left it to my colleagues like uh, Lara Kozi and her colleagues to take care of that. But I told them two things. They can do, they can read almost whatever they want, but there are two things to be careful. One, our motto, no fear, no favor. For all the fuels, technologies, the uh, countries and so on, this will not change. The second thing which will not change is something that Mr. Vice President rightly pointed out. It is the, the colors of the cover of the book, which is the colors of my football team, Galatasaray. This will not change as well. So uh, other than that, they can change everything, and they are doing a, a very good uh, uh, work, uh, my colleagues. What do we try to do in the World Energy Outlook is two important things. I think it, is, it goes unnoticed sometimes. One. We want to provide the big picture, the holistic picture of the world energy, as, as no country, but no country is an energy island, including the EU, including the United States, China, or Sweden, or Luxembourg, or, or uh, Thailand. Every, the, the interactions within the energy sector is very important for any country to understand their uh, energy future. This is number one, to provide the, uh, the uh, holistic picture for the global energy scene. Number two, you cannot look at a fuel and decide about its future in the absence of looking at the other competing fuels. If you want to understand renewables, and it is future, you have to understand what's happening in the natural gas markets, coal markets, electricity demand, and where does the electricity demand come from? So you have to know all of these things. You cannot look at one single fuel. It can be renewables, it can be gas, in the absence of knowing what is happening in the other sectors. So it is the second thing that the World Energy Outlook tries to do, providing a holistic picture for the global, the world picture, the interactions among the countries and interactions among the fuels. After saying that, let me start with the, this year's World Energy Outlook. We have, in this outlook, there are many new dynamics, but we identify four large-scale upheavals that will affect the global energy picture. Number one. one. The very first one is on the uh, oil and gas part. We think U.S. is becoming the undisputed leader of oil and gas production. This is very important to understand the oil and gas markets for many years to come, and not only for energy, but I believe for the foreign policy, energy security, among other things. Just to give you two numbers here, we expect in the next 
five years, more than 80% of the global oil production will come from United States only. Second, in terms of gas production, only in seven, eight years of time, around 2025, U.S. gas production will be 30% higher than that of Russia, who has been an established gas producer leader uh, in the world. So, U.S. undisputed leader of oil and gas. That's number one. Number two, from a different angle, another upheaval. Solar power is becoming the cheapest source of electricity generation in many countries, including China and India, that are the major drivers of uh, global electricity demand growth. Solar power, big, mainly as a result of huge, as we all know, a cut in the cost. In the, only in the last three years, ladies and gentlemen, 2014 to 2017, the solar cost is divided by two. It's halved. I don't know any other single good whose price is halved. Not milk, not beer, not books, not newspapers, nothing. Halved. This is very important. And we expect in the next three years there will be another halving of the uh, uh, solar cost. So therefore, the, the drive, the growth of uh, solar is not uh, mainly, uh, I should say, related to environmental issues, but mainly because of economics, which helps immensely to reduce the emissions. This is the third point that I wanted to uh, highlight as, a, uh, as upheaval. This is, the first one is the U.S. solar, and uh, it comes the third point where I don't have uh, the remote control. The third point is uh, about China, the largest emitter of the world, largest energy consumer of the world. China, we all knew China as the country which put its stamp on the global energy pictures recently as a major driver of oil demand growth, as a major driver of coal, and also a country whose emissions have been very, very important when you look at the global uh, uh, emission picture. But now, ladies and gentlemen, since two years, Chinese economic policies are changing rapidly. China is moving away from a heavy industry-based economy to a lighter economy, and the energy policies are following that. We have seen that the Chinese leadership opt for a clean energy revolution, and it has been cemented in the two weeks ago in the Chinese Communist Party Congress by the President Xi Jinping under the motto of back to blue skies of China. In fact, as of today, China is number one 
in the world in terms of solar power, number one in terms of wind, number one in terms of hydropower, number one in terms of electric cars, number one in terms of nuclear power, number one in terms of energy efficiency improvement. I can go and go. And this will definitely accelerate strongly based on the current policies. And in our report, we have a comprehensive study of Chinese energy sector, how Chinese new policies once again can change the global energy trends, but this time in a different uh, direction. Now, this was, the, this was the third upheaval that I wanted to highlight. Fourth and the last one, after U.S. being a leader of oil and gas, second, the solar energy becoming the cheapest source of electricity generation in many countries, and third, China. The fourth one is electrification. The share of electricity in the global energy picture is growing strongly. Just give you one example. We expect global energy demand in the next two decades to grow by 30%. And electricity demand to go to increase more than 60%, double the rate. This means the future is electrifying. The future is electrifying because of the very strong growth coming from electricity consumption, ranging from cooling needs in China, India, and other countries with the increasing low-income uh, 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 group levels to digitalization, from digitization to electric cars. So it is the reason our report says future is electrifying. Now these four changes going from, coming from different directions uh, tell us that the, the declining cost of many sources of energy, it is becoming more affordable. There is a strong push in the direction of uh, sustainable uh, energy, which is not strong enough, I will come in a moment, and third, uh, perhaps the definition of energy security is changing. In the past, when we talk about energy security, oil security came to our mind first, but now, among others, electricity security is becoming a major preoccupation for many uh, uh, countries as a result of the, what's happening in the renewables, as a result of the leaving some sort of uh, traditional source of uh, electricity behind us and looking at other options, but electric security becomes an important issue. Now, where do we go from here? This is definitely an open question, therefore we have different uh, scenarios, but one thing that we know, one thing we know, the, all these four changes happening, and many others we uh, highlighted in our report, are coming in big time, the amount is big, the movement is big and very fast. Therefore, the governments, industry, and others who are not able to read the game now may well make wrong decisions, wrong investments, or late decisions, misinvestments. So therefore, we think it is important to understand what is happening in the global energy markets. When we look at the future, we have seen years and years China being the leader of global energy demand growth. But with the lightening of the economy, China still grows, 
but not as strong as before. And now India becomes the main driver of global energy demand growth. So this is something that we think very important for the countries to understand. Uh, up to now, for example, many European countries look at what is happening in Brussels. I think they should continue to do so. And, but they started to look what is happening in Beijing. This is also very wise. And now, more and more, we have to see the decisions made in uh, New Delhi. It will have also implications, given the sheer size of the uh, population in India, growing economy, more than 7% uh, per year in the last few years, and very bright uh, prospects. Another thing that we, uh, when we look at the countries globally, we see is that uh, the role of the countries in the global energy uh, scene, they are changing. For example, Middle East, we knew Middle East, we know Middle East as a major energy exporter, but now Middle East is also becoming one of the major energy consumers, demand centers. Huge growth, for example, gas demand growth. Middle East is one of the uh, drivers of uh, global gas demand growth. And at the same time, United States, that we have been thinking of U.S. as a major energy consumer and energy importer, turning to be a significant energy exporter. It is, as I am saying, that we have to understand the changes uh, and this rapid changes uh, in best way in order to understand the global energy dynamics. What is happening in terms of fuels globally? First of all, coal. A big debate. I am sure, like uh, uh, Mr. Vice President, uh, many of you have been involved in the bond uh, discussions like I am. Coal was at the center of the uh, discussions there. Now, coal demand growth is very, very slow, almost flat in the next years to come. There are different pictures. In China, for example, we see a, 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 a decline uh, of uh, coal, perhaps a bit zigzag, but the main trend is a decline. We have seen decline two years in the past. Then a, in uh, Europe, we see a decline, but we see an increase in South Asian countries. Oil demand growing, continuing to grow, but much of a slower pace than in the future. Gas is still growing. Gas is still growing, even slightly higher than uh, in the past. And in fact, gas is growing in all our uh, scenarios. But this is, of course, as I will come in a moment, conditional uh, growth, I will explain. And unconditional, very clear growth comes from uh, renewable energies. Solar, wind, and others are the drivers. As I said, this year we focus on China, and uh, next week uh, I will uh, release this report in Chinese, together with the Chinese uh, minister, and also the Minister Xi Shenhua, who is the climate change uh, energy minister, Minister Xi Shenhua, both of them in China, and some numbers about China. Now, China is in this picture. In terms of coal, in the past, almost all the growth in coal came from China. 
and we expect Chinese coal consumption to decline, mainly driven by local pollution concerns, full stop. Okay. Oil. China still plays an important role in global oil markets, but less of a so in the past. And in terms of natural gas, big time of growth of natural gas, domestically but also imports. When you look at the 2017 LNG imports of China, numbers are impressive. And in terms of uh, low carbon, as I said, China is and will be the leader uh, in terms of solar, in terms of wind, in terms of also nuclear power. Uh, even today, about 60 nuclear reactors under construction, almost half of them are in China. In the future, we see a similar trend. Solar power. China is not only use a lot of solar, but they are a big manufacturer. Today, six out of 10 solar PV panels manufactured in the world are Chinese manufacturers, six out of 10. And this will continue in the future, we uh, uh, believe. Now, a few words on electricity generation, which is, of course, always at the heart of the debate in Brussels and uh, elsewhere. This is what we have seen in the last six, seven years, a big growth of uh, uh, renewables followed by uh, coal and natural gas. When we look at the future, we think the coal growth will be rather limited. And this is big, the big part of this growth comes from the coal power plants, which are already under construction or have been under construction, uh, followed by uh, gas, again a strong growth. But our report notes that the, in general, the growth of gas doesn't come mainly from power generation, but also from industry and uh, buildings for uh, heating. Nuclear, a, a limited growth, mainly driven by, again, uh, China and renewables. Renewables are the main growth center of our electricity uh, generation in the next years to come. And I guess when I say renewable solar power, by far, is the driver. This is the, the growth coming from uh, solar power is uh, equal to coal plus gas put uh, together. And uh, this may well be revised upwards, of course, uh, downwards as well, but uh, if the, uh, the cost declines are faster than our assumption or the governments are much stronger than what they said they would be, we may see higher uh, solar numbers. But currently, we see that about 70% of the growth in global electric generation will come from renewables only. This is definitely something to uh, underline, uh, we believe. And here, uh, China, India, and US are the leaders for uh, PV. And uh, in terms of wind, of course, Europe, uh, is one of the leaders and our report notes that very soon, in about a decade of time, uh, hopefully earlier, wind will be the largest source of electricity generation in Europe. This is something that we may need, uh, need to take uh, note of. And of course, this uh, growth of renewables is good for the uh, globally, 
good for the climate change, good for the uh, local pollution, but also poses some challenges in terms of how do we integrate them in the best way in our electricity systems without having some uh, unintended consequences and in the most economic uh, way. I said future is electrifying. Why do I say this? Because the numbers show that. As I said, 30% growth total energy demand and 60% growth electricity demand. And the drivers are China and India. India, ladies and gentlemen, in the next 20 years or so, it's, it is capacity one Europe. So we have only the one Europe, uh, an energy uh, picture for which uh, Mr. Vice President is in charge of. Then there is other Europe coming. I don't know who will be in charge of that, but it will be in India. Plus, China is adding one United States. So, India adds one Europe, China adds one United States. What will be their choice of technology? The, uh, the fuels, the regulatory framework, this will affect everybody. So China, the biggest country in the world today in terms of energy, it's one United States and their choices will affect. How can it affect? If they go much stronger solar, then we will see the solar costs uh, uh, will come down. Or if they turn something else suddenly to nuclear, it will have implications uh, on that too, given the sheer size of the, what they are building. So therefore, uh, we need to pay, uh, I believe, utmost attention to what are the decisions there. We shouldn't think it is far away. It affects uh, all of us. Now, where does the demand growth come from electricity consumption so strongly? It is there are some traditional sources such as industrial motors, but there are some new or stronger uh, drive coming from cooling. Only the cooling, the air conditioning, electricity needs from China and India is equal to half of EU total electricity consumption. Only the cooling uh, need. So therefore, what kind of efficiency standards, if any, will have implications for the electricity uh, uh, um, uh, demand? Another one, a study that we have recently uh, put together, how digitalization affects the energy sector, what is the intersection, and more and more digital technologies will give a different picture to electricity consumption uh, trends. When we talk about electric demand, when we talk about electricity generation, one thing which is always every day, I see, in the newspapers, electric cars. Every day, one other announcement from a country or from a, a company coming there. So we think electric vehicles are on the fast lane, and today, just to put in the context how much they grow, we believe, we have two million electric cars in the world, two million today. We think this number in 2025 will go to 50 million, and then afterwards increase close to 300 million electric cars, mainly as a result of two factors. One, some countries are having, taking some regulatory measures. Europe is definitely one of the leading regions here. France, UK, uh, Holland, Norway, Sweden, many countries, plus China is definitely a, a, a leader here. This is one, policies. And second, 
costs of batteries are going down substantially. Now, this is excellent. Uh, electric cars are growing. Of course, once again, if the governments don't put the infrastructure in a timely manner, then this will change the, uh, uh, slow down uh, the electric car uh, penetration. And our numbers, compared to last year, we revised them up because we have seen that the, in the last year, many countries came up with strong policies and uh, we have to uh, implement them, plus the changes in the battery costs. So, electric cars, 300 million, big number in the streets of the world, but we, we will have 2 billion cars, the total car fleet. So out of 2 billion, 300 uh, a million, it's about 15%, uh, uh, whereas today we have 2 million cars to goes to 300 million. So is it big? Yes, it is big. It is big and it is changing the, uh, the, uh, the uh, energy sector. And it will have two implications, which I discussed. One on the oil demand, the other one is the CO2 emissions. Now on the oil demand, I know that to talk about the oil markets in Brussels is not the best thing to do. Uh, Lara told me, but I will still talk about this. The big question is, uh, oil demand is peaking or not? Everybody is talking about this because of what's happening in electric cars. We say, yes, oil demand is peaking for cars. Full stop. Not beyond that. For cars, we will see oil demand is peaking, which will have implications, among others, for the refinery sector, which is important uh, uh, even in Europe. But... We don't believe that the oil demand globally will peak because the growth is coming from trucks, aviation, and most importantly, petrochemical industry. We never talk about petrochemical industry. Perhaps it is not the most important sector when you talk on a daily basis, but they are the main oil demand driver growth. Why? Plastics. We need plastics. Our demand for plastics is increasing every day, from packaging to our phones, from our phones to the toys and our daily uh, life, and petrochemicals are growing. Trucks are growing. In my view, trucks is, are one of the blind spots of our discussion in the transportation sector. So as a result of that, while electric vehicles are breaking records year and after, and they will continue to do so, penetrate the market strongly, we still think global oil demand will grow slower than before, but still grow. This is the one implication of oil demand. Second, under CO2 emissions. Will this big penetration of electric vehicles, are they going to solve our climate problem? And our answer is no, no whatsoever. The impact of 300 million cars, even with this decarbonized more and more decarbonized electricity system I show you, the impact on the global CO2 emissions of 300 million cars is less than 1%. Sorry to say that, but the reason is two things. One, the power sector still is not fully decarbonized. And second, the share of transportation in the total CO2 emissions is limited, and the share of cars within the transportation emissions are smaller. So as a result of that, 1% uh, impact. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't push the electric cars. We should. But don't expect that the electric cars will make a miracle and solve our uh, climate uh, problems. 
if I were, there are many policymakers here, I would, I would uh, recommend them to look at the trucks which emit more CO2 than the cars uh, for, uh, from a climate change angle. But the message is clear, electric cars will continue to penetrate the markets in a big time with implications on oil demand slowing down, but not huge implications for climate change, but of course positive implications for local pollution. United States, again I have to talk about oil and gas. Uh, some of you might uh, uh, remember that in the World Energy Outlook 2009, I don't know if we have any uh, colleagues, I saw Jeff Piper somewhere here, I don't know if, if he's uh, here uh, now, he would uh, remember from the commission. In 2009, we make a World Energy Outlook, studied the shale uh, uh, business, and we said, ladies and gentlemen, a silent revolution is set to start in North America, especially in the United States. It was 2009. It means eight years ago. And what we are seeing now is a big growth from the United States. It is happening, both in oil and gas. I, want to, I know that not everybody is interested in oil and gas, but just to put a geopolitical context, put it there. Saudi Arabia has been the leader of global oil many, many years. They are still a very important country. But the biggest growth in Saudi Arabia happened in the year 1960s by the expansion of the Gavar field. This is a huge field, the biggest field. And United States, Expansion of shale oil is as big as, if not higher, than Gavarfit in a very short period of time. Russia, gas, number one country years and years. Russia's becoming a gas leader many, many years is because of the, in Soviet time, huge expansion of the West Siberian fields, gas fields. And U.S. is doing it in seven years, eight years. So just to put the context, not only huge amount of oil and gas coming, but at the same time, they are coming in a very short period of time. It is the reason in the beginning I said, please be aware of the, not only the, the amount of the changes, but also the speed of the, uh, uh, the changes. So as a result, uh, the, as I said, the very soon, currently the U.S. is already number one in global oil production and number one global gas production and we think this will uh, continue and it will have major implications for the oil and uh, gas uh, markets. I will talk about gas in a few uh, minutes but for oil I should say uh, that it will be very important uh, that to see the, how the prices develop in the oil markets with the $60 we have today above $60 a big, big, big chunk of the shale deposits in the United States are becoming profitable investments. Now, coming to gas. This is, I think, important for Europe and beyond. Currently, as you know, we produce, we, pardon, we trade gas in two ways, basically. Pipelines and LNG. These are two ways how we do it. And uh, today, pipelines are responsible about 60%, big chunk of the international gas trade, and LNG is less than uh, 40%. And, I shouldn't say and, but 
is a result of what is happening in the U.S. plus Australia and some others, we are seeing that the, the picture in tenancy gas trade is growing and within that the share of LNG is growing very strongly. And ladies and gentlemen, a big chunk of this number, LNG number, are the projects which are now, FIDs are taken and under construction. They are coming. Nobody can stop them. We expect in the next two decades, more than 90% of the international gas trade will come from LNG. There are only few pipeline projects which will take place as a result of the growing LNG plus some other difficulties those projects are uh, facing today. And of course, this is changing the gas markets, this is changing the energy markets, this is changing the roles of the countries, the players in the gas markets. For example, in terms of gas exporters, we will continue to have uh, Russia and the Caspian countries there as the important exporters, but US, Canada, Australia are emerging as new gas exporters and almost all by LNG. So new actors are coming. I believe, as I have been saying since a long time, uh, for Europe, for European countries and other gas importers around the world, this is a golden time. Enjoy it, but, but you have to make sure that the, your governments, your companies are aware of the fact that there are more than one or two or three sellers now. There are more sellers, and I know very well, ladies and gentlemen, these sellers are competing with each other. Make the most out of it uh, as uh, the consumers, as citizens. And not only we have more exporters, we are also changing the, the importers are changing the picture. Currently, Europe has the biggest share in the global gas imports, and Asia is coming now as the major driver of global gas imports uh, uh, coming from China, India, Japan, and uh, Korea. And many of them are in terms of LNG. So this is changing a lot of picture, a lot of conditions, prices, contractual terms, more flexible, shorter durations, and uh, as a result of that, as I said, it's a very good time for being a gas importer if they use it in a, uh, in, in a wisely. Now, I would like to finish uh, my uh, words by talking about a, a major preoccupation for our agency, climate change. We had two weeks ago our uh, biannual ministerial meeting, ministers from Europe, United States, Canada, Mexico, India, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, many, many countries came together with about 30 largest CEOs of energy companies, and one issue was very clear. IEA to lead, to support the clean energy transition. 
and I am thankful to many governments, in addition to our current work on clean energy transition, gave IEA during our ministerial meeting a multi-million and multi-year program on clean energy transitions to support the emerging countries uh, accelerate their transition to clean energy. But when we talk about climate change, ladies and gentlemen, many of you know the work we have been doing, 450 ppm, two degrees scenario, what we call. We think it is very important to push that very strongly, but at the same time, there are two other preoccupations worldwide. We have to put them together and provide a roadmap for sustainable energy. Sustainable energy is not equal to climate change. Climate change is the, perhaps the most important part of it, but together with climate change, which is crucial, we have two other preoccupations. One of them is the having everybody and access to electricity worldwide. This is a major preoccupation in India today, in Africa today. And the third one is the, which is a very important topic, to address the local pollution in the cities. So we said, how do we bring all these three major objectives and have a roadmap? What needs to be done? We reach the Paris targets, we bring the number of people who have no electricity to zero from 1.1 million today, and plus the, the lessen the air pollution in the cities. This is a work which we call our sustainable development scenario, developed by uh, uh, Ms. Kozi and uh, her colleagues. So, we all know that the NDCs are if all implemented, they will bring us to a temperature increase around three degrees Celsius, which will have catastrophic implications for our planet. And what we would like to see is to bring it down, as we do in sustainable development scenario, to reach the targets in Paris. But ladies and gentlemen, this is not an easy task. In order to reach our targets, that I mentioned, these three targets, Paris target, access to electricity to everybody, plus the local pollution being halved, we have to have, just to give you an idea, our energy efficiency needs to improve by a factor of two, which is not an easy task. We have to have more gas demand but especially replacing coal in major countries. Solar capacity needs to increase much higher than the, all the solar numbers I showed to you, and perhaps we have to have much more electric cars. Only such a big, unprecedented growth of different factors would help us to come to a sustainable energy future, addressing climate change, access to energy and local pollution. I can tell you that in Bonn, when I talk with many leaders from the, uh, the emerging world, they are very happy to see that in addition to climate change, IEA 
also considers other aspects of energy, their main preoccupation, their daily preoccupation, energy access and the local pollution in the cities. Today, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot go to, your children cannot go to school in New Delhi. Schools are shut, okay, because of the very issue of local pollution. And we have to find a solution, local pollution, climate change, and energy access at the same time. Let me finish uh, our uh, presentation by uh, saying to you that the, a big boom is happening in the United States. It is shaking up the global oil and gas markets from prices to the role of the established producers. And the trade flows will be changing significantly. Gas grows in all our scenarios, especially when it replaces coal. But we have two buts for the gas industry. Don't take it for granted, these gas numbers growing. Pay attention to two things. One, if we see price spikes in gas, higher prices, coal is there. Coal is waiting there, especially in Asia, to block the growth of gas. If the price go up, and the renewables are already competing with you. Number one, heads up. Number two, number two, the leakage of methane from the gas production, transmission, and distribution is a serious concern. Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Therefore, Gas industry needs to take methane issue seriously. It's a homework for them. If they want to make sure that the gas is beneficial in terms of environment, local pollution or greenhouse gases, they have to minimize or nullify the methane emissions for which we made 10 important concrete suggestions to the gas industry because technologies are here. They just need to make a bit more investment take it more seriously to minimize the uh, methane. China. China changes, so does the world. Looking at the numbers, uh, it is, it, as it has been the case last decade, we are going to see China pushing the clean energy technology revolution, as they say it, and this will change the entire global trends. We have highlighted our sustainable energy uh, scenario. And in this scenario, it shows that it is feasible, it can be done to reach the climate targets, address the local pollution, and reduce the uh, number of people who have no access uh, to energy. It costs only a bit more compared to the, our NDC world, but uh, we think it is worth of pursuing this, looking at this all three sustainable development goals which are uh, anchored in the United Nations agreements. And uh, we think, finally, electrification, as I said, is the future of uh, energy together with digitalization. It is going to make our lives much more comfortable. We will have much more uh, free time, much more flexible uh, lives. But it also poses some challenges for the governments in terms of how to regulate uh, certain things, and plus some perhaps security concerns, including the cyber security with the growing digitalization of our electricity systems. 
With this, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you. Thank you. I know, goodness me, as ever, it's always a pleasure to listen to you. You, you reduce things which are hugely complex into kind of simple, straightforward analysis, and you leave us highly provoked. At least me, I have loads of questions for you, but I, I, I won't abuse the role that I have, but I'm sure people in the audience will have. But it was incredibly rich. Um, and complex what you presented with a number of things that we need to take account of. But I'll bring you in in a moment. But let me invite our panels, remainder of our panel, to the, to the floor. I'll just invite you in a moment, sir. Before I invite um, the Vice President to respond and say you know, what his view is on the markets and the outlook, um, given where we were last year, and you were here, and the, the picture you presented and the picture you're presenting today and what's happened in between. And we've seen you know, the upsurge in CO2 emissions in a way that we potentially didn't anticipate. Are you optimistic on the, the roadmap that we're on at the moment, post-COP21? I am optimistic about the suit, uh, climate change. Mm. <clears throat> Yes, there are uh, two things which make me very optimistic, and one uh, uh, point of uh, uh, concern, uh, what makes me optimistic is that the market dynamics are pushing the uh, cleaner energy technologies. It is wind, it is solar, it is energy efficiency, electric cars. They are being more and more used, not only because of the policies, but at the same time, they are becoming uh, cheap or cheaper compared to past. This is number one. Number two, there is a, a strong political will across the world. The biggest number of countries in the world were in uh, Bonn, and uh, what I saw is that there is a strong will to address uh, this uh, climate change issue. Therefore, uh, I am uh, rather uh, optimistic. The we are traveling as the energy world. Mm -hmm. We know the, the destination of the travel is for sure, we know. The only thing is that whether or not the pace of the travel is fast enough so that when we came to uh, the, our destination, it is too late or not. This is the only question I have in mind. Okay, let's come back to that. I'll ask you more about that. Vice President Maros Zashkovic, please, if you would like to come. I'm interested in your particular perspective on what you heard in Bonn and again the same question whether you feel optimistic about what you heard. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning to everyone. At first I really would like to thank the Friends of Presidency for organizing uh, this already I would say annual event. So it became a tradition that Fatih comes and presents uh, the World Energy Outlook here in uh, Brussels and I really would like to thank Friends of Presidency for providing us uh, uh, this great possibility to share the insights and the first immediate uh, reduction to the report with all of you. And secondly, I really would like to congratulate Fatih on the report. And I have to say that when I always see him smiling, it's not only that the report is a good quality, but his Galatasaray is playing uh, good matches, and I think they are doing very well in, in the Turkish league, and uh, therefore he's even more optimistic than he, than he usually is. But uh, coming back uh, to, the, to the report, I think uh, that we already 
uh, learned in, in Brussels and worldwide to take it as a very important piece of research. And you would see that also in our impact assessment, in our legislative and political pieces, we are uh, very often referring to the, to the findings because we, um, uh, we are absolutely convinced that the figures are very solid, that the outlook is really global, and that Europe as a global energy player should really take uh, this research uh, into account. And I think that it helps us really to better understand the global uh, trends in the world of energy policies, in the world of uh, uh, climate policies. And uh, I think that uh, these mega trends, these four major takeaways uh, Fatih presented to us will be really uh, very important indicators upon which we have to focus in the future. If you allow me just to dwell on some of them, what I found in particular uh, important is the fact that we see that uh, the competitiveness of, renew of renewable uh, energy and uh, uh, the potential of energy efficiencies are already very strong and will be stronger in the future. Therefore, our decision to treat energy efficiency as an energy fuel on its own was the right one. And uh, now we realize that not only Europe, but the whole world would have to be uh, double time better in uh, energy efficiency that we are uh, right now. At the same time, um, what was very important was uh, the underlying the fact uh, uh, how much more electrification we would need to make sure that uh, our power cycle is cleaner, that we would be able uh, to power the electric cars, the, our houses, and all the cooling needs, uh, especially in uh, Asia, Asia, and uh, uh, what would be the new role of the gas, and I will dwell on that in a second. But what I think was uh, very vivid in the presentation of AFIT was the pace and the dimension uh, of that uh, transformation uh, which we have to be taken into account and will be shaping future European uh, scenarios for Europe and through our uh, global diplomacy to the rest uh, of uh, the world. Some of the news uh, Fatih brought was a very good one, very optimistic one, that we see the relative moderation in our uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and we see that, in particular, the power sector is doing better than the other sectors. And I agree with him that uh, until uh, recently, we've been kind of overlooking that increased uh, uh, proportion of the greenhouse gas emitted by the transport sector. In a moment, I will speak about the clean mobility package, but I would like to reassure you that we haven't forgot about trucks, and we will come uh, with that uh, proposal early uh, next year. And I'm very optimistic that through ICAO and IMO, we can also achieve tangible results in aviation and in shipping, because everybody will have to contribute uh, to the fight uh, against uh, climate change. The news, which was not so good, is the fact that whatever we do right here is still not enough. That uh, we, even with our best of intentions, putting all our um, commitments uh, from Paris uh, uh, into uh, practice and properly implement them, would still be well over that uh, well below two degrees Celsius benchmark, which we agreed uh, in, in Paris. And um, therefore, I mean, uh, the particular scenario which is presented uh, in the outlook at uh, the business as usual 
scenario compared to what needs to be done to this normative uh, scenario, that how much more we have to do if we really want to hit uh, that healthy trajectory which would keep us from the dangerous uh, development uh, in, in the climate change was, uh, was particularly telling. And uh, when we talk about the, the figures, it really presents uh, the huge uh, challenge uh, for, uh, for all of us. But I think it was quite clear that if we want to meet the future, if we want to make it to the decarbonized second half of the century, the major drivers would be renewables, would be energy efficiency, and that we would be working very closely with the gas sector, seeing it as a bridging solution, as very important transitional fuel, as an indispensable associate, and I'm sure that a lot of research would be put not only into capturing the methane leakages, but also into development of synthetic gas, into the development of the new ways how to store the energy through power to gas and many other technological breakthroughs we, we need uh, to achieve to integrate better renewables with the balancing power, uh, balancing power of uh, gas. Talking about the money. Uh, Fatih probably left it to me because I, I was waiting when the figure would appear on the screen. It didn't appear on the screen, but it's very much uh, in, uh, in the Outlook report. And if we compare these uh, two scenarios, ones which we uh, need to do to meet uh, our Paris commitments, and uh, the second one, the most comprehensive one, which would also guarantee the sustainable developments in the developing countries. We are really not talking about such a different figures, but the figures are staggering because for the first figure we are talking about 60 trillion US dollars and the more comprehensive figure is 69 trillion US dollars. So the difference, if you look at it from the broader perspective, uh, um, if to cover everything and make sure that the world is a better place or just to focus on uh, the needed investments to, to tackle the climate change is, is, is really not that different, but we have to bear in mind that how um, important this figure is, and I think it would be one of the questions uh, for the decision makers, policy makers, uh, uh, how to make sure that we would get that level uh, of investment in to fight against uh, uh, climate change. So what could we do? At first, I think we have to spend our money more wisely. We have to spend um, the way in the smartest way. And we have to definitely look at the areas where we do not uh, spend the money uh, anymore. And here, of course, I'm hinting at the needed elimination of harmful fossil fuel subsidies. Then I think what we really need to do, uh, we need to leverage public resources better as we started with the Juncker Investment Fund, as we will propose uh, for uh, external investment fund uh, later this year, because uh, what I hear from the financial circles and from the banking sector, the money is there. We just need a good project, we just need a good de-risking loan guarantees, and we are ready to invest. And it's quite clear that uh, this is how we have to fund many of these priorities in the future, and this is how we approach also the preparation of the next EU seven years budget, the multi-annual financial perspective, because clearly we would be looking for more leveraging optionalities and more innovative ways how to uh, propose the, the smart budgeting and smart spending, especially for this very important uh, uh, area. 
And then, of course, uh, what would be a big help to bring additional investment uh, into the sector would be the fact that we would see more and more decentralized way how we would uh, power our economy, more democratic uh, uh, power uh, generation, because we see that more and more consumers are turning into prosumers and more and more households, cooperatives and, and small towns and villages are actually becoming the clean energy producers and I believe it will help us to spread over uh, the need for the necessary uh, investment. What we need to do from the political level to achieve this uh, transition? And here I think that most uh, important from the political level would be to make sure that uh, uh, we provide the effective deliver delivery, that we provide legal certainty, that we would not uh, change the approach, that we would stick to our strategies. And um, therefore, uh, we in European Union are making absolutely clear that uh, for us uh, the Paris is sacred, that we not only sign up uh, to these commitments, but we as a first major economy are transforming all our commitments into the legal laws, and uh, that we will do everything what we promised in Paris by the end of the mandate of this commission. You are professionals who are following this development very closely, so you know that by the end of this year, early next year, we want to open so-called trilogues on all the uh, legislative proposals we made under the umbrella of uh, energy union strategy. And I can tell you that it was much easier for me uh, to talk to my partners in Bonn with the emission trading scheme being just adopted and with the clean mobility package being just uh, presented because it uh, helped us to develop the narrative that at first we needed uh, to fix our energy security to make sure, exactly as Fatih was describing, that each of our member states would have uh, diversified uh, supplies of energy, that we would not depend on uh, one supplier, that we would have more competition uh, on our energy market. But secondly, we wanted to make sure that this energy would be increasingly clean. Therefore, we adopted this clean energy package just last year. And we wanted this clean energy would power clean cars in Europe and that we put them on the most advanced infrastructure which would support the transformation, that change, and that uh, would allow us uh, to develop the technology of green batteries uh, in Europe where uh, this uh, energy could be stored and where these millions of new electric cars could help us uh, uh, with the storage question which we know is uh, one of the most pertinent if it comes to uh, integration of intermittent uh, renewables. So that's the narrative, that's the strategy we have and I believe that we will charter clear legislative framework for that uh, uh, before, uh, before the next uh, uh, European elections. If you allow me uh, to conclude uh, on um, two elements, on the importance of uh, digitization, because it's quite clear that all this uh, uh, transformation. All these new developments wouldn't be possible with the state of current grids. We have to smarten them. We have to uh, get much more data out of them. We have to learn how to use this data and make sure that uh, electricity can go in, uh, in, in both ways and that our internal market is finally becoming single one 
uh, well interconnected, which would, hope, uh, which would help us to really be much more flexible as it is required by uh, uh, today's uh, uh, priorities and by today's uh, uh, challenges uh, brought in by the, uh, by the uh, integration. And to conclude, if I am optimistic, yes, I am, because uh, the atmosphere in Bonn uh, was very positive one. I think that was very clearly that uh, uh, the uh, spirit of Paris uh, uh, carries on and uh, that the mobilization, not only of states, but especially of the cities, uh, non-state actors, NGOs, uh, philanthropies, and, and most importantly, business sector is, is, is very, very strong. And we have to work on that positive spirit and mobilize it. Of course, the atmosphere in the negotiating room was a little bit more difficult, partially because uh, uh, of the latest position of the United States, and we would uh, need to use very well this year for well-prepared uh, well facilitative dialogue of 2018 for uh, finalizing all the details and, and rules uh, for the governance uh, of, the, of the whole process, and also for looking for these new ways and new technologies, how make sure that uh, the developing countries are well on board and that uh, we will make sure that they can benefit from this uh, energy and technological transformation we are currently going through. The research and innovation would play a very important role, and therefore even all the impressive numbers being said about China, I'm still very proud that if it comes to the patents in these new modern technologies, in, uh, uh, in integration of renewables, in, uh, uh, in development of these new technologies of uh, Europe is number two, with 35% of the uh, patents. Uh, uh, filed last year, not behind China, but behind Japan. And we are catching up very fast, and I believe with all that new drive which we brought into the automotive sector, we will see that creativity, that research and, and, and innovation spurring up and bringing us uh, fantastic products uh, for, for the future. And uh, therefore, I think that uh, Europe's value added would be, what is it today? pioneering for the new technologies, showing how we can integrate them across the world, uh, across the board, and working on what is the most valuable commodity in this very demanding economic and political process. And this is the unprecedented public support we have uh, from this, uh, for this transformation from our citizens. They are very responsible. They want to live uh, in a cleaner cities. They want to drink clean water. They want to drink clean air and they see the green economy and clean tech as a huge investment opportunity and as a factors which would decide our economic future. So Fatty, friends of Europe, thank you very much for providing us this opportunity, for giving me the chance to react to this very impressive report. And now I'm sure we will have a very good debate with our colleagues on the panel. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for, I mean, clearly both of you gentlemen are optimistic. On the one hand, you can see the markets actually working in a particular way. And you didn't pull your punches, you know, the absence of America in that conversation makes it very different conversation, but you're not saying it's actually going to serve as a huge barrier, but we'll see. So we have these two different perspectives uh, and a lot of rich analysis of what's taking place. I suppose one of the questions in people's minds is we're, you know, we're a year away from the European elections. 
We know what's happening in Europe at the moment in terms of what the dynamics in the East uh, and, the, uh, and the kinds of, if you're, if you're an objective spectator, the project doesn't feel as if it's in a healthy state. If you're an objective, I mean, sitting on the ground, if you were like, and you think that actually the politics aren't working in a way that's going to lead us to the kind of pathway that you have set out. Are you, I mean, in terms of the fact that next year's quite, we're going to refer to it as make or break Europe because we feel next year's really quite pivotal for so many reasons. Um, in the context of the, the political scenario we find ourselves in, what do you think needs to happen next year from the Commission's perspective? Yeah. Of course, uh, we, we go, uh, uh, I think I have to use the past tense, we went through very, very difficult uh, uh, stages. I think Europe was never tested as, uh, over the last few years, the combination of the financial crisis, migration crisis, uh, that uh, test of our uh, democratic culture, uh, seeing um, um, the extremist parties becoming uh, particularly strong in several of our member states, and also the new uh, social media turning the politics into something new uh, to which we all have to learn how to respond and, and how to react. But I think that we are not the only one. We see what kind of big changes happen in the United States, how demanding it is in all democratic countries. So we have to learn to live um, in, uh, in this new life. But what is, I think, very important that we found this new unity among the 27 in uh, the European Union and uh, that we also uh, decided uh, rightly uh, to focus on the limited number of priorities which we can explain to our citizens. And if I talk about the energy union, I'm very regularly checking up the Eurobarometers, how are we doing? And, and I think that actually the, the policies on fighting the climate change or uh, all the measures we are adopting to make sure that we have clean air in our uh, cities. Uh, uh, promotion of the clean tech and green tech are among those which have the strongest uh, public support. So I think that public uh, um, support is there uh, and it will help us uh, to really push in the same direction that the political will. And what is, I would say, the new thing over the last two years is that I feel increased support from um, the business leaders because they also are telling me, look, the situation, for, ex for example, electricity market was unbearable. There were no uh, market signals. I mean, the system has been not working. The, the market was fragmented. So what you put on the table is a good thing, and we are ready, uh, ready to support it. The same, same, I would say, with energy security. I mean, the fact that the people just until two years ago still been paying different prices for the gas, and uh, especially the Central Eastern Europe was paying more, and on top of it, they've been... Uh, more worried if the gas would come or not. Again, there a lot of things has been done, so therefore the, I would say the member states and the most important cities and see the benefits of that common effort. And here I really feel that, that, that we have a support uh, from our citizens upon which we have to work and we have to deliver on very concrete measures because this is how our success rate in the end would be measured. Thank you for that. I suppose the question is whether the citizen consensus or view uh, will translate itself in terms of a unified Europe. But we'll come back to that in a moment uh, in terms of issues. And I think one of the other issues that we need to think about is it's a point that you made, Fatty. If the future is electrifying, who's going to make sure the infrastructure is in place and the investment for it? Because it sure isn't going to come from the public sector on its own. But let's, let's think about that question too. So I want to open it up to the audience. I'm sorry I have to do this because these two lights are like glaring in my eye. So if you've got questions, great. Gentlemen here. And as usual, those of you who've been here before with me moderating, no grandstanding, no lectures. 
questions and be really clear uh, who your questions aimed at. There should be a mic coming your way. Where are our mics? No, no, there's one coming to you. Don't worry. Say who you are very briefly, please, as well, and your question. Thank you. Giles Dixon, Wind Europe. I have a question to Dr. Birol. Uh, Fatih, you talked about the challenge of system integration of variable renewables. Um, as you said yourself, the costs of batteries falling significantly down by 70% in the last six years. Demand response is also playing a key role. We have 20 gigawatts already in Europe. It's rising to over 100 gigawatts of demand response capacity by 2030. So it is getting cheaper and easier to integrate variable renewables. That's good news, and of course, there's good news, as you said, on cost reduction in renewables. The cost of offshore wind has fallen by, a, it was 150 euros three years ago. Today, the prices are in the 60s. Significant cost reduction there. My question to you concerns the EU and leadership. You said very clearly, China is number one in this, this, and this. China is the undisputed leader in the energy transition. But as the Vice President has just reminded us, the EU aspires still, and rightly so, to be the leader in technology development. And I think the EU aspires still to be the leader in political ambition. And to that end, the Commission tabled ambitious proposals on the clean energy package last year. Unfortunately, many of those proposals are being watered down in the Council now, notably the renewables target and how that will be translated into effort by member states. Are you worried about political ambition and leadership in Europe? Okay, so thank you very much. We had a couple of more. There's, there's a lady there in the glasses. I'll come back to the others, I promise you. Good morning, Florie Gonsolin from CEFIC, Chemical Industry. Thank you for the very insightful um, presentation this morning. I would have a question regarding the uh, electrification trend and how you see this in relation to greenhouse gas reductions and energy efficiency policy. So for the chemical industry, the expectation is that we will have to achieve further savings in the decade uh, to come, but this electrification trend uh, could push us in the other direction. And who's your question aimed at again, do you say? The interaction between the, the okay. three um, No worries, elements. okay. And we have the gentleman here. Pierre Lacombe, Foundation for the Urban Environment. Uh, my question is about the relation between the excellent calculations done about energy and the calculations about uh, emissions, particularly greenhouse gases. Uh, there has been a number of studies about the link between the two, but we know that, for example, for coal, there are maybe 80, 80 different kinds of coal, and so the link has to be made much more detailed. And I was wondering if you have some views on how the research could go on to make it more clear that energy is one thing, climate is the other, and how to link the two, because that is the real result that we need. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I will come back to you. I'm going to go back to the panel, and then we have other speakers, and I'll open it up more widely. Fatih, your a very specific thing, a question about around ambition. I start and then um, uh, Mr. Shevkovich, uh, I'm sure, will add. Sure, sure. Uh, the, do I trust the political leadership in EU? You want to start with this? I think it was very much aimed at you. If, the, okay. if the answer is correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, uh, leave aside the current political leadership. We have to acknowledge something. I, I imagine China is uh, today, uh, yes, in terms of solar, wind, 
uh, electric cars as, as a leader. But we shouldn't forget that Europe has been the champion of fighting against climate change since almost two decades or so. And uh, the pushing the renewables in the difficult times, I would say, difficult times meaning the, when the costs were not uh, here, when the subsidies, significant subsidies were uh, needed, Europe was uh, definitely the, uh, the leader. And uh, I think we should only be happy that the other countries follow the footsteps of uh, Europe and find Europe as the source of inspiration. Now, plus, however, the question is here whether or not Europe capitalizes of being a leader uh, years and years in terms of the it is leadership of technology and the profits going back to uh, uh, European uh, economies. So this is the only thing we need to think about this, but from a globally viewed, I think we should be only happy that the China and the other countries are following the European uh, footsteps. And uh, I know the, from the energy part, the, the European uh, energy making uh, leadership, uh, Mr. Shevkovich, Mr. Kanyete and others, I have full trust uh, in them and judging the markets and making the right uh, steps. Electrification and greenhouse gases, are they going hand in hand? So in my view, uh, we are going in the right direction. Uh, more than 75% or close to 75% of all new power plants uh, will be uh, renewables. It's going in the right direction. But whether it is enough, I think, as I tried to show, to, uh, to reach our uh, Paris target, it is not enough we have to make uh, the most out of it. But my plea is, I think uh, Mr. Uh, Vice President uh, very uh, wisely uh, highlighted, only with electrification, power sector, decarbonization, we cannot reach the targets. Industry sector, transportation sector, buildings, they are all extremely important. We talk about energy efficiency. Uh, today, two out of three buildings built in the world they have no efficiency codes or standards. They are just built like this. Mm -hmm. And once they are built, they are 70 years with us. So the efficiency standards are extremely important and to look at other uh, sectors. And thirdly and finally, we, uh, energy versus emission factors. Uh, it's a very good question, but we have, we don't have only the coal emissions factor. We have all the different grades of coal in different countries, their emission factors are embedded in our report. So we don't take only coal and just give one global number. Each country is lignite, high quality, which is the ash rate, and all of the, not only for coal, but petroleum products, for uh, gas, and all of them. It is done in a very detailed and desegregated manner in, lies, in line with the uh, UNFCC standards. So these are the three points I wanted to make briefly Thank you. before passing to Mr. Shevko. I can, I can be very, uh, very brief because I, okay. uh, I, I agree with uh, Fatih, I would just add the fact that uh, we can already, uh, we are building and we have built our reputation on our consistency. I think when uh, the 2020 targets uh, and objectives being presented uh, at that time, I also heard that, you know, it would be very difficult and if it's really uh, possible if we can achieve them. And I can assure you that we will. I mean, in many aspects, we are overachieving already right now. And therefore, I'm also absolutely convinced that uh, we will achieve, and I personally believe we will overachieve 
the 2030 targets because of the technological revolution which we are going through and where we see how the, the costs uh, linked with renewables, the integration into the systems are, are falling down almost every day. Therefore, uh, I would not undersell uh, the Europe right now because the legislation we put on the table. The objectives we said are clearly the, the most ambitious in the world and we will be the first major economy which will really transform them in the binding laws. So I think in this way we are really leading by example and uh, we are really doing our utmost to, to show to other important parts of the world that uh, this is uh, how we do it in, in Europe. And of course, are we going to compete with the gigabats with the China, where we have 500 million and, uh, and they will be at 2040, I don't know, 1.3 billion people? I think we have to look at the proportion. And I think what is very important is that we look what is the European value added. I think we should be the best in the world in system integration. We should be the best in, in, in the high-tech uh, batteries. I think we should be the best in the, in, the, in the clean mobility and in traditional sectors where the, where the Europe uh, was all, all, always uh, uh, belonging among, uh, among the leaders. And that, I believe, uh, would allow us in the coming detail seeing the huge demand uh, for renewable energy in China and in India uh, to have uh, this first uh, mover advantage, to use the European technology uh, for promoting, I would say, uh, these new power uh, generation needed uh, on uh, these uh, continents and to open the market uh, for our uh, companies there. So I believe that it's an investment from which we would uh, benefit not only in, in the Europe, but it's an investment which will bring us a lot of uh, not only political dividends, but also, also okay. commercial revenues uh, in the next decade. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm sure there's a, a, there'll be other questions uh, for you in terms of kind of, as I said, about the infrastructure for all of this and, whether how, and how good we are in terms of patents to market. Because one of the issues for Europe is that we're very good at devising stuff, but we're really poor at bringing things to market, which we know really well. But I want to bring the other um, uh, panelists in, but before I do, I'd like to put up some quotes from citizens. We have a uh, debating platform, Debating Europe, where we reach into some 3 million um, users across Europe, and we try to bring in the voices of citizens into this debate. So trying to give you a view of what does it feel like from the street up in terms of what people are saying. So you've got... Um, there you've got, you've got um, Carmelita from Italy, though you can read it. It's basically, should we be optimistic about the progress we're making as a planet tackling climate change, or should we be freaking out? Then you've got Rob from the UK, who says, given so many governments seem in denial about climate change, do you think the private sector will ultimately have to take the lead? And then finally, Magdalena from Poland, who says, how far are we away from a common EU energy market? So this, these are just three of millions of views on the issue of climate change, just to frame the next section of our discussion. And therefore, I want to uh, now invite Laurence um, to say a few words. You've been, you know, you, you're the European Climate Foundation, you've been involved in the conversations um, uh, in COP21, a quite significant figure in this. What's your take currently now when you look back three years and you're here, where we're here in terms of the conversations that have happened in Bonn and what, how you see the scene playing out across Europe in particular? That's a good question. And uh, first, thank you to have, me, to have invited me to share uh, my thoughts. Uh, I was in Bonn, of course, last week. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, when I look back on the preparation for Paris and... Um, 
how finally, uh, of course, a big achievement, a very ambitious goals, and at the same time, the relative conservative character of the national contribution, which at the same time, at, at that particular moment, like around November or December, where most of the contribution were presented by the governments, still, that was the first time that every country was thinking about putting forward a climate plan. It was the first time. And so two years after, no more than two years after, uh, we see that every country is looking seriously at how to, to do it and to put this in a legal form in their own law. Uh, and this is taking shape, again, in many, many countries. So this point of view, we are not backtracking. Um, of course, I'm, I'm happy to, to be there because, of course, I'm looking every year at the World Energy Outlook and, and of course, uh, commending a lot the efforts of all the team behind FATI doing it. And I think it's remarkable evolution. When you look back at the many uh, World Energy Outlooks, they were more pessimistic about the cost of solar, for example, right. or uh, many uh, evolution. And, and of course, I, I want to particularly link to that because um, the World Energy Outlook is a very important tool. It shapes expectations. So that's why it's so important. And uh, in a way, uh, it's good to look at it and, and see how much it is um, say, um, be, be in front of the reality or at the where we see the reality is or, or finally too conservative. And that's a, a good question because the shifts are so important. And, um, and so I'd, I'd like to share my remarks on, on these shifts mm -hmm. and on what I see still a very a big progress in this World Energy Outlook of this year and still pessimistic about the, the, of course, the solutions there or the trends here are not making it for Paris. And we are lagging behind uh, for a number of reasons, in particular because of the energy consumption. I think it's very important to have air quality and access to energy now, electricity, as a really a distributed access, a fair system that allow everyone to get access to electricity in particular. And that's a big a big element, I think, a very important feature. I think the renewable energy piece is now very, very dominant in world uh, energy outlook. And again, that's new. Uh, look, looking back, how the shifts have been mm -hmm. important as a revolution. I do see still that we are not taking in world energy outlook still the, what I feel as now CEO of ECF and having really worked so, so hard for getting Paris done that coal is not, is a big question, like Fatih was mentioning, was a big question in COP23. Um, I think we, we are not seeing that the end of this evolution. Uh, and in particular because I feel that one dimension we're probably lacking in our vision is that we have parallel evolution uh, that makes these sort of trends, like coal is still there until 2040 and beyond, whereas we have to, to pick the coal consumption and, and go down, and of course certainly abandon a number of power plants that are under construction, and that of course a judgment that WEO is making, and <coughs> we should try to change that perception. At the same time, that the first time, it's only the energy trends, but the financial community is looking differently at the energy systems. Mm. Three or four years ago, even in Paris, the financial community thinking we should finance clean energy was still a niche. It was still a niche activity. 
Now, when you want, for example, to fund the new coal mine in Australia, well, that's not evident to, to find the funding if the government doesn't come really heavily in. Uh, so this, final, this shift in other communities, I think, makes the assumption for the future looking different in my view. That's the same for gas in my view, and that's the same as uh, Fatih was selling. Of course, maybe the oil in cars will go down, of course he's right, but then we have petrochemicals and then we have trucks. I think we, we will see in aviation and shipping, of course, but because the concentration of efforts of um, innovation, of you know, the highlights were on these sectors, trying to electrify uh, energy use, first, and of course decarbonize power. That was finally the conversation we had during the last five years. The same for, um, <coughs> for the coal these days. And now we are looking at, uh, and, and of course then the electrification of cars, which is much more recent, even three years ago, who have, what I've said that we could have such really uh, very important evolutions. And so now the light will be put on petrochemicals. I feel it that now the next the next highlight, the next nut to crack, is really industry and heavy, tr and, and heavy, heavy trucks. Mm -hmm. And I see strong evolution there. Uh, I'm participating to, to many conferences and, and meetings, of course, and trying to produce piece of research with many universities. I do think we will see revolution in the petrochemical industry, meaning in the plastic, plastic use. Yeah, huh? And a, and a substitution to plastic. And the one on one side, the circularity, which is now the new element to, this, to reduce emission in the industrial sector, as well as the substitution for plastics, is a new game. And I would say that trucks will be the same sort of focus. So we see waves of innovation that we didn't anticipate because there was not, uh, again, because it's a stepwise, it's where governments have more regulation in the beginning and because we don't see the future. And I see these new sectors now much being attacked and, and in a way assessed by innovation. And that's why I think finance is playing such a big role. And finally, just I, I don't want to be too long, but mm. I, I do think that in gas we should be more innovative of the way we see gas. I think Vice President Sefcovic was thinking about, yes, gas, but you, you can have many gas. And uh, we can have synthetic, we can have a new relation, and very hybrid system in the electricity and, and the link between power and gas. So, uh, again, I see that expectation, that evolution, that how we anticipate future, I think doesn't preserve from, doesn't, can allow for many ships we are not really anticipating now. And I would think that on this side, I hope that WO 2018 will be more optimistic on coal phase out. And, uh, and probably on other shifts. I have over a question on China and India, but I will, I will let you. this for future. Thank you very much. I suppose I take your point about the various evolutions that are taking place. I suppose the question is that well, as markets adjust, the issue is do we have the time and do we have the money? Because actually in terms of petrochemicals, okay, fine, there might be a revolution, but perhaps we need to get a better act together in terms of making sure it happens speedily and trying to work in a different way around it. But we'll come back to that particular issue. Last but not least, gas. We've spoken about gas a lot. And there you are. Uh, I'm really pleased that you're, you've been able to join us. I mean, I would like you to say a little bit about your perspective on where you know, you've heard about the gas market. 
import export what's going to happen in the dynamics as we move ahead but also this point about gas is a renewable in different ways that's quite a big agenda but where, where, where do you stand on some of these issues and where do you project things developing as we move forward thank you thank you very much and and thank you very much for having gas naturally here also on behalf of all our members it's not easy to speak after three such brilliant uh, speakers and there's a lot of topics i have i have written down three uh, in, in Fatih's presentation that really uh, struck a chord. I think the first is, of course, in, in his base case, and this is on a global view, 25% share for gas in 2040, I think is, 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 is a positive signal, probably as positive as we, we've had in this city uh, for many years. But I think the second thing which struck an even uh, nicer chord is that in the best case or in the sustainability case or in the case I think we all hope is the one that we are able to implement with, with the policymakers, there's an even brighter uh, role for gas in the global uh, area with an extra 20% uh, growth in that scenario. Uh, the third point that was made, which is very important, is that as an industry we cannot take this for granted. There are many mm. obstacles and issues ahead. Uh, the market is becoming more liquid and more interconnected and more integrated, but the pricing uh, point is very important, particularly in developing markets. So, if, if I may, what uh, shall we do uh, to achieve uh, this penetration and this growth and give our contribution to the climate targets and, more importantly, also to the urgent air quality targets that are being set, particularly in Europe and in China? Uh, we've identified four areas uh, to work on. The first is in developing economies that, of course, we've seen earlier are going to be the swing uh, economies uh, for energy, particularly India and China. Here, it's really about pricing. Uh, the industry can do a lot to further reduce the liquefaction costs and the infrastructure there. We have seen unprecedented inflation uh, in liquefaction costs uh, going up uh, four or five hundred percent over the last ten years. Mm. So there's uh, certainly an area to work that can really help make gas more competitive uh, than coal. The second um, area is on stripping out uh, coal altogether in the more developed economies. Here there's a very positive alliance signed by 20 countries. Uh, this is particularly important uh, for Europe as uh, we know that the emissions coming from coal uh, are 50% greater and you can really have the emissions by switching to gas and the infrastructure is already there and this will have an immediate and positive impact on air quality. Uh, the third uh, area to work on is in the transport sector. We've seen how in trucks and ships and planes uh, they will continue to increase uh, their growth of oil mm. but of course there's a very strong argument to be made for gas in all of heavy transport today. It is cheaper, it's reducing, uh, let's say, air quality particulates uh, by more than 90% and CO2 by around 50%. And, and that's something that, as an industry, we need to work on together with uh, policymakers. As new rules will be introduced in, in transport, this will help. And the fourth area is the one that uh, Mr. Sevkovic, the Vice President, mentioned around creativity and innovation and research and development and technology. There's a lot more than, that, than we can do as an industry. We need to really uh, make gas more and more sustainable. 
we need to make gas uh, to some extent renewable. Mm. Methane leakage was addressed as an issue. There's a lot more that has to be done. A lot has been done already with 46% reduction since uh, 1990. This is more than the overall greenhouse gas emissions over the same period, but more can be done. This is in the interest of the environment, in the interest of safety, also in the commercial interest of the, the people owning the gas that's leaked and, and emitted. Some initiatives are underway. Uh, there is the discovery of, of emissions and their repair, uh, which is very important using latest technologies. And I think there's more to be done in the, in, in, in the definition of common standards and the best practices that can then be rolled out. Uh, and of course, uh, apart from methane leakage, in the future of gas and in the sustainable future of gas, uh, there has to be a role for carbon capture and storage and utilization. Mm. There has to be a role in biomethane. There has to be a greater role in the new forms of gas, whether it's hydrogen and power to gas and gas storage. We always have to remember that with the increasing reduction of the cost for batteries, um, cost for storing gas is still two or 300 times cheaper uh, per megawatt hour uh, and there has to be, therefore, a role to integrate this very cheap and potent instrument that we have to manage the volatility and the flexibility of other sources to bring it to the market in an integrated way for the benefit of all. So I, I, we received as an industry a lot of inputs today. I would like to thank uh, everyone again for having us here and for contributing to uh, setting some of the pillars for the debate and the solutions will require more and more integrated efforts and solutions. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to ask you a really difficult question, if I may. And, is, and you don't, I mean, you can say I'm, I'm not sure, but it's like you've got a quite an interesting year ahead. As, as we say, 2018 is really quite significant in advance of the elections, and you've got so much to do before 2020 and beyond in terms of projections. Given where gas sits, where you, where, what, where your, what your role is, what message would you give to Mr. Juncker or politicians next year in terms of getting us there? What do you need from them? I think what we need is actually not much because when you don't need money, you're starting in, in a good position. And I think what we really need is to be able to play in a level playing field where if we look at the global picture and we look at the European picture, they're quite different when it comes to the role of gas and the weight of gas. And as the Vice President said, Europe has an excellent track record at exceeding its targets. It's probably the only place in the world where the targets are set, they're put into legislation, and they're exceeded. And we continue to hope that they will be exceeded. But in exceeding the targets, we need to give all the solutions a balanced market. And the ETS reform that is coming, I think, is a very positive step in that direction. We need electrification to be a means to an end and not an end in mm. itself. Mm. And the, the end being a cleaner world where energy access is provided, but also now taking a more European focus where the cost and competitiveness of energy is dealt with because European manufacturing cannot compete effectively with the United States if the cost of energy is, is twice as high or three times as high. And we keep reminding people, and we have to remind ourselves, that the cost of natural gas today is a third of the cost of electricity. So we have to look at a unified and holistic solution, mm. and this is really what we ask of, of policymakers.
Great, thank you. It's a good message to, to convey. Okay, colleagues, out, over to you. We have uh, less than 20 minutes or so, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of hands that have come up straight away. And again, remember, to the point and brief. So the gentleman there, I'll bring you in here as well. Jean-Michel Glachon from School of Energy and Climate Regulation. As just said by Laurence Tubiana, universal access to energy and depollution of air in cities are acknowledged as major issues. And I would like to get from her, and, and it has been also underlined by the FATIS report, and I would like to get from Laurence how to see this as an international climate issue. Is it mainly inside India, they have to clean their cities and to give access to energy. It is mainly an international issue, but what kind? Is it about financing? Is it about creating technologies? What type of technologies? From the industry, as off-grid, etc., or even uh, public technologies, as uh, using satellite to determine if this okay. province is better uh, connected to the grid or better off-grid, etc. Anything, Laurence? Thinks about it. Okay, we could have a clear one. I'll come back to you in a second. Did you get that? Uh, I didn't hear very well. So the, you were asking what kind of, what was the channels to get access to energy and clean energy? In the sense that actually, when you think about India and, and also its, its uh, role, in terms of what, 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 also in terms of technology, what do you see the role of technology in the evolution that's taking place as well? And, you know, in terms of is it a kind of a in India issue or an international issue? What's your perspective on where things are going at the moment? I think, Very briefly. Yeah, I think, uh, again, uh, at one point in time, you, you see, you, you just prolong the trend you see, and then you see a lot of coal in the, uh, in the system. But when you look at the debate in India today, for example, uh, there is an ongoing debate, do we stop the pipeline of coal power plants or do, and we go for uh, solar where it's already cheaper or not? And I think this, again, there is no simple response. It's a conjunction of factors where every finally change the judgment. That's the relation between international and national. That's why I put the insistence on finance, because the finance gives the judgment, in a way, at global level, what is finally worth doing and, and for the future. So there is not a simple response to, to, to that. I see today many people in India saying, why should we invest so much in coal where in reality it's cheaper and we need decentralized electricity? Mm. So it's again, now I do think it's really a question political economy in each country, plus of course the ways of innovation that governments you know, we have to support. Okay, thank you. So you had hands. Um, so I will, gen gentleman at the back there, I will come to you, sir. Just there, the man standing up. Thank you. Adam White from the WWF European Policy Office. When we see the pace of change in energy markets, electricity markets in particular with renewables and electric vehicles, is there any concern on the panel that policymakers and policy, including the, uh, energy, the, the clean energy package for Europe, could become a brake on the energy transition rather than a driver of it? What's your view? I think there's a big risk that it's the, the potential is being I mean, underestimated. Is your concern that the energy package isn't up to speed and up to date with what's happening? Exactly, yeah. And why is that? Uh, well, for a number of reasons, including there's a, a report going to be coming out in a couple of days, cleaner, smarter, cheaper, from uh, the European Climate Foundation. Yes, I, yeah, yeah. And that, uh, I think, gives a lot of the answers that, that progress could be much, much quicker if the policies okay. are in place. 
All right, let's see what some of our colleagues think. Gentlemen here, finally, I know you've been very patient in the grey suit, yes. Thank you. My name is Adele Gabal. I'm Secretary General of the European Energy Research Alliance. And um, I'm referring to um, uh, the slide on the uh, global energy changes uh, that uh, Mr. Birol uh, has presented. And we see very clearly that if we don't speak about China, I mean, the energy demand is coming from developing economies very clearly. Uh, India, Middle East, Africa, uh, South, to a certain extent, uh, South America. So my question yeah. is, uh, what in your view, question to Mr. Bihal, what in your view can be done in order to be sure that we, in these countries, we leapfrog, uh, let's say, the conventional, uh, the development of a conventional energy infrastructure? And I have a question to Vice President Sefcovic, uh, which is, what can be the role of EU uh, in, that, in that respect, and what is the opportunity uh, for EU uh, mm. to be in there? Thank you. Interesting questions, but... Uh, Politics, I'm sure, will play a huge role in that, in that respect. Lady there, at the, there you go. Thank you. Pascaline Gabori, pilot for DEV. I have two short questions. The first one is, do you see cities and to what extent as a game changer for both for the energy production, especially renewables, and for the energy demand? And my second question is, do you see Europe as a leader in the sector of energy efficiency? Thank you. Thank you. That's very good because I will come back to others. Um, that's a very good point. I'm glad you raised the issue. Um, I'm waiting for digital as well to come up from the audience, not to kind of patch you in the direction. Uh, but the whole issue that, you know, I think there's a report, there's a city the size of Shanghai being created every four months. I mean, when you, that notion of urbanization and the impact on, on climate, can I come to that in, in a moment? But Fatih, in terms of your, 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 your response to what's been said about, I mean, that particular point um, um, and the other points that were made, what's your view on the kind of perspective as we move ahead so I will if you don't mind I will answer these two questions mm -hmm. and also a couple of things that they uh, are uh, two colleagues uh, Mark and uh, uh, Lauren okay. Uh, said yeah, yeah. okay so um, first of all on the uh, leapfrogging mm. uh, issue this is extremely important uh, point and the, the good thing is for example uh, Africa you know I am in Africa today two out of three people have no access to electricity it is for me, it is a shame for, for all of us uh, here. And when you look at the history of energy, what happened in China, what happened in uh, uh, Europe, what happened in the United States, the, these countries uh, electrified their energy systems by using coal, and they are now moving to gas and renewables. But in Africa, what is happening is that they are skipping the coal phase, is they have huge amount of uh, renewable energies, both solar and wind and hydropower, and most importantly, is the cost of now, of these technologies are cheaper than the traditional ones in many cases, in distributed cases, and the governments are being determined, they are leapfrogging only. The, what would help is the government's policy, government's support for this leapfrogging, because the market conditions are extremely, extremely uh, uh, favorable. Second point is uh, energy efficiency and Europe. Europe is definitely one of the leaders of energy efficiency, both in terms of price signals, but also in having the prices right, but also in terms of putting regulations and the, uh, the standards in place. Let me give you one example. One of the, uh, in Europe, we use a lot of gas for heating. And when you look at the uh, statistics, in the last 11 years, European gas 
demand for heating remained flat, although number of dwellers increased more than two times. It is mainly as a result of the uh, efficiency uh, policies we have in Europe, standards for boilers at home. So this is something very important. Europe continued to be a, a, a leader. Just if I may, just three points very under briefly, my colleagues' uh, reactions, <clears throat> starting with uh, uh, Mr. Shevkovich. The, as he rightly pointed out, the, uh, the sustainable future, solving the problem of climate change, solving the problem of electricity access, and solving the problem of air pollution costs, as he rightly mentioned, 16% higher than the NDC's uh, work. But gives us a wonderful uh, planet. Not only is energy and climate issues are solved, but it will have other problems to be solved, such as immigration, such as the gender issue, so this is a big package there, more than 16% of more investment I wanted to highlight it, as he also uh, highlighted. Coming to Lawrence's points, uh, the, uh, Lawrence is also one of the colleagues who supported uh, the changes in the World Energy Thank you very much for your kind words, uh, Lawrence. And it is becoming more and more important, uh, uh, the World Energy Outlook. And as Lara told me, the, this year's sales of the World Energy Outlook, it is the best-selling energy book in the world, and this year's sales are going like the electric vehicle sales. It is going uh, this way, and I am very happy because one of the main revenue generators. But does it contribute to carbon uh, reduction? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, put that aside. Go on. Uh, now, coal. Now, coal phase out. Of course, it happens. We will look at them uh, and we will uh, we will uh, reflect in our numbers. But the num the, our, what we say in our report, in our main scenario, coal's boom days are over. Full stop. But we are, as I said, no fear, no favor. We are not emotional. We are not uh, a, a bit feelings. Today, there are about 200 gigawatts of coal-fired power under construction. Mm. It will be very difficult to tell the India, Thailand, Indonesia where they put the money in to stop construction because we want so in Brussels and the friends of Europe. So, therefore, this is the reflection uh, uh, of uh, uh, that. And in terms of the also, if the petrochemical industry, as Laurence says, one day fully renewables, we'll be very happy to put it there, but I don't have the biggest hope tomorrow it will be so, or electric planes, I'll be very happy to uh, fly with or without uh, Lawrence in the plane which is completely electrical uh, in the next week or so. So therefore, I believe there are rooms for opportunity, innovation, but our base case reflects the current pace of the innovation and what we uh, would like to see. That's the issue. Because when, when we Let have me just say something on gas, and I finish here. With gas, I'm, I'm very happy that Marco mentioned that the gas industry will pay, pay more attention to uh, the methane leakages, and that is very important. But also, let's don't forget, why we see gas gaining market share is also because of the uh, lot of gas coming to markets and prices, there's a downward pressure on the prices. If the prices go up, I'm very sorry that we have to, uh, we have to revise our numbers uh, downwards because there are cheaper options uh, uh, there. Uh, beginning of this 2000s, there were five LNG importers in the world, five countries. And today they are reaching the 50. Mm. And most of them are so-called opportunistic buyers. If the price is low, they will buy. If not, they will look for, uh, for something else. So let's put the also price issue in the context of uh, uh, gas growth. Indeed, and, and, a, and a very volatile, potential, potential volatile market as you look ahead. Um, 
I know before you go, the question I do want you to answer, but right, not right now, is that whether the pace and the collective pace of change is going to be good enough and sound enough for us to get to where we are, because all the predictions will suggest, in terms of the gap of money, the gap, the pace of the rate of change, and the behaviour issues that we need, is just not enough. But that, perhaps you can make them that your parting comment uh, at the end. Just to tell you that uh, there is a, the pace is good. Mm. but not uh, sufficient enough. Mm -hmm. So I have to be, with the current pace, we will not reach to Paris targets post-stop. That was my point. Sir, clean, the clean energy package, you had quite a, a, a gentleman at the back thinks it's yes. out of date. <laughs> oh, it's not up to speed with what's going on. Oh, our, our colleague from WWF is for sure very well informed that the European Parliament asked us to measure again what is the cost uh, of renewables and how it has evolved over the la last few years. And um, our conclusion clearly is that the costs uh, went down and we are measuring um, uh, what is the cost of getting to 27% or higher. So I would always underline that in our proposals we made that very important uh, addition, at least 27%. And I believe with uh, the current technological pace and with, uh, uh, with uh, the clear indications how the costs are falling down, there will be stronger and stro stronger case for, uh, for having more renewables into, into the market. But what we need to do is to give the legal certainty to our business operators to have a clear strategic vision where we want to go. And then I believe that uh, private initiative uh, will evolve even faster and I expect much faster uh, innovation pace than we see uh, right now. And I think that would be very important for Africa. Here I agree with uh, Fatih that uh, current technology should really help us to overcome uh, that shame of the past where 700 million Africans do not have the uh, access uh, to the basic electricity supply. And today we know we do not have to, be, to build the big power plants. We do not have to carry on the, the hundreds of kilometers of, uh, uh, of, of cables across the jungles in Africa because we can solve a lot of problems with microgrids, with solar power, with decentralized uh, system of power generation. And that should be where we should be focusing our, our uh, development. So and if, I, climate if, I, if I may interrupt, what's the EU's approach to Africa in the next 10 years then in terms of we know, I mean, my sense is, like, like Fatih said, trucks is a, bland, a blind spot for our landscape as we move ahead, I think Africa is a blind spot. If we think about the, the pace of change and, and the, the rate of urbanization, the population growth. I think I, I would say um, th three points which would also cover the point uh, raised by our colleague on, on the cities. First, I think we have to tackle the basic issue of power generation in, in Africa and we would continue to be, as a, as a European Union, the biggest climate donor and we want to increase uh, uh, our financial support through this external, in, external investment fund upon which we are working right now where we want to bring also private sector and the biggest uh, international and European financial institutions to, to fund more projects of this kind in Africa. And second, I think that uh, the fate of the, and role I would say, of the, of the cities in this change would be even more and more important than it is right now. We see that the cities, especially those working with us in the global covenant of mayors, are more ambitious than uh, the countries from which they're coming from. And we want to build uh, a very strong regional chapters of the cities cooperating with each other in Africa, as we have it in Europe. I think we need to have progressive cities in, in, in Africa, as Africa will become more and more urbanized, and therefore I think the lessons learned from Europe, how we can make the city smarter, more energy efficient, and less pollutant, would be something which we should share and promote in Africa as well. Okay, thank you very much. I can take one last question. I know the gentleman has been very, very patient, but you have to be very brief, because I've only got a two-minute clock here. 
and I need to, call, I need to finish up. Okay, uh, very brief. Uh, Paul Bossens for Micromatic. Uh, nuclear energy, it's a sensible subject. You said China is also is leading in uh, clean energy, also nuclear energy. Most of the new builds are over there. Do you think that in Europe we are not very keen of nuclear? One day we have to review our ID, and at that time we might be dependent on technology from there. But uh, it's also a question for maybe Europe. Both of Perhaps it is very, very briefly. I see the fact he's very eager. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm eager to give it to you. So. No, 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 of course, I mean, the, the nuclear power is always the issue, which uh, it's raised a lot of emotions uh, in, in the room. As you know, for how our member state, this is uh, clearly the very important source of, of low carbon energy, and, uh, and most of uh, these member states are not going to, uh, to change uh, uh, the mind. At the same time, I always say that uh, uh, there is a big challenge in front of the uh, nuclear industry uh, in Europe, and uh, this challenge is uh, to complete the projects which have been started and uh, to make sure that uh, um, these power plants which will be built will be, um, will be able to compete with the ever-falling uh, prices of uh, renewable energy. And they would uh, have to include uh, in, their, in their costs also the, the parts of the business cycle uh, which was not case a few years ago, like the front cycle, like the end cycle, like the, the storage, like the decommissioning, because this is what the finance ministers, energy ministers, and the wider public want to know. So it means uh, that for those countries who decided to, to continue uh, with, the, the, with the nuclear energy, uh, according to our rules for the sovereignty of the energy, energy mix, the, the decision is there. But I know that uh, these countries would also demand that... Uh, the, the, the nuclear industry would be able to present a very, very strong business case comparing with that technological revolution we see in renewables. If I can add to China a bit here, uh, there is something in the economy, we all know, the learning by doing. If you do something more and more, you know how to do it better, how to do it cheaper. Since China is building substantial amount of nuclear power plants at home now, we shouldn't be surprised that the, the cost of uh, the new nuclear power plants uh, made by China is coming down, and one day we may well see China is an exp uh, exporter of nuclear technology to many countries in the world and competing with established nuclear technology exporters such as France, such as Germany, Korea, and uh, Japan. So China may well be playing an exporting role as well sometime soon by putting, pushing the uh, prices down. Thank you. Now, final. So this is coming. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to close up now. But I want to Lawrence and, and, and yourself, Marco, just some final thoughts. Given what I said earlier about what next year constitutes in Europe in particular, um, and the way you're reading the signals that the market is giving, but also the kind of pace of change that we know we require, what would be your thoughts to a, a governing body like the European Commission in terms of what it needs to do? I think that... Uh and I'm happy to, to say that to our vice president in charge of, of energy. I think uh, this commission has to prepare the ground because as Vice President Sefcovic says, we, we have to not only to overachieve, but to be able to revise our contribution by 2020 for 2030. And I think the best way to do it 
is one to understand the dynamics in European society, and, and I totally take the point that the cities uh, are in a way giving a strong signal to the markets, and we can have seen many more. But I think this commission has to lay down the ground. We need to have a, a European budget that really reflects, that is really Paris compatible. We need to have the scenarios of 2050 already having a sense of what they could be. So we need the vision now, because that will be, again, the building blocks for the next commission, the, the next round election in Europe, at least to have a sense of the direction. And that's why I, I'm, I really trust that it can be done next year. Okay. Marco, if I can ask you, invite you to say a final few, particularly in terms of what you think, whether you think the private sector can collaborate horizontally on this. I, I think we've seen in, in renewables how much China has taken the lead in, in that. We've just heard now it could do the same in nuclear, clearly trying to do the same with electric cars and all sorts of technologies that require massive scale, including digital, may end up being developed in a, in a system where the state is, is very heavily investing. Um, we've, heard, uh, we've heard reference to cities. If you're running a city today, your number one concern is air quality, more than climate change. Mm. And we, we saw on a chart the, the outlook is for about 300 million electric vehicles in 2040 out of a total of 2 billion. That's maybe 15, 20% penetration, assuming maybe even 30% penetration. That still leaves in this outlook a lot of diesel cars. Mm. And, and if you're in a city thinking about banning diesel, either you go nuclear, like the UK is trying to do, which requires several new Hinkley points to fuel those EVs, or you go gas. And gas cars are a ready solution today. You switch your car to gas, you get 95% less pollution, you get half of the CO2 and half of the cost, and even better performance. So I think there's going to be a lot of switching from diesel to gas, not only for ships and heavy trucks, but also for consumer vehicles. We've seen Volkswagen launch uh, several new vehicles. Fiat is launching vehicles. We have one million natural gas cars in Italy on the road and two million electric vehicles globally mm. on the road. So I'd conclude with that. Thank you very much. Laurence, you want to just come back very briefly? But very briefly. It was really a spoiler. Uh, to, tomorrow, we, together with Vice President Seskovic, we are considering and commenting a report for ECF and other groups to that considered by 2050, 50% less gas uh, in the European consumption. So I think there, there are many ways. And uh, so gas is, of course, not the ultimate solution. And we have to be serious about that. Okay. This debate could continue, um, obviously. Um, and I thank you all for, for this, for this uh, very rich uh, conversation. It's absolutely evident, as I started, this is a question of supply and demand. We've heard a lot about how markets are dynamic. We've seen the global power mix, how it's going to change into the future. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's going to require political leadership, but also a hell of a lot of investment from the private sector and others. And the pace of change to fundamentally change if we're going to get to where we need to be. Please let, uh, in, uh, join me in thanking our panel in the usual way. Thank you very much for your contributions.